Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Thanks for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. It's Thursday, February 15th. The state's third kauhale to help the homeless is to officially open today. We talk to the governor about the facility and others to come. We also hear his thoughts about the abuse and neglect case that led to the death of a 10-year-old child in the care of legal guardians. We look at the future of the State Water Commission in the wake of the Lahaina wildfires, why some want to take it out of control of the Department of Land and Natural Resources. And podcast potential for our middle and high schoolers, NPR throws down the challenge. Know a student with a story to tell will share why NPR wants to hear it. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This afternoon, Governor Josh Green will be on hand for the blessing of a kahale, a pop-up homeless village located on Middle Street near the city's bus transit center in Kalihi. We talked to Governor Green earlier this month about those plans. We're so proud of that Leo, which is going to be quite magical for 50 people. And this is a part of the process, a part of the desire to have a homeless health system. So those who need housing get it and who need access to health care get it. And gradually it, it decreases harm and, and suffering. So last week we opened one, you know, our, our Kahale in the windward side, Kamalo Ko'olau. So that was also really good. Can't promise we'll open one every week, but we're going to work rapidly towards 20 Kalhale statewide in multiple different locations so that people have a chance to get help wherever they are. I think I have said that the one over there by the state health department, I thought that was a great idea because of its location. And I was sorry to see it close up after six months. I thought it might be there for a year. And we gave, we had to give them because they had already committed that space, that property starting in January again, but expect a, a Kalhali to rise again in the region. They're in the urban core, somewhere near Washington Place, but definitely near the hospitals. It's just that was a test to see if it was worth it, and it certainly was. Well, what can you tell us about the need in the Middle Street area? There's been longstanding need for uh, a super long time. People living under the bridges in the area. There's drift in and out of Sand Islands area. And there's also been a commitment on the part of a lot of people to move to the Middle Street Kalhale once it gets formed from some of the urban core. So we expect it to be very well populated right away. And once again, this is a part of a broader plan to have every region covered. It just happens that Middle Street was one that, as Lieutenant Governor, I already had some idea we should do. So we're making good on that promise, on the Windward promise. As you know, we have lots of work that we're doing in Ivalet. We have the Kauhali over at the H4 right there. And we have prospects now all across the island. So it needs to be in every region on some level, modest, safe, nice white fence around it uh, in each case. But we can't have any one community bear too much of the, the challenge. That's really my goal, to have every community help in a modest way so that when homelessness is finally ended, it's because we all did it together. Well, you know, I was driving by the viaduct and it was recalling that little encampment under there because I would go there to do stories and got to know some of the people there and got to know some of the homeless people living up along the stream and remember, oh gosh, I think there was a a homeless man who died. He was attacked by dogs. It's so not safe in those areas. And so if you can get some of these people in alternate shelter 
uh, particularly, like you said, those who need medical care, um, that's a big deal. Yeah, one person on average dies every day is what it's been like over the last several years from either exposure or infection or violence. And people who are on the street have a 10 times higher likelihood of being hit by a car and killed. So all those terrible factors result in uh, an average lifespan of just 53. And that's not okay. So society has to care for one another. And this means and include those who are homeless. It's also just really good because when we do a better job providing housing and services, people's costs drop about three quarters because they're not stuck going to the emergency department all the time. And so it's good in many ways. And this is just one of our goals that, you know, I could talk all day about homelessness easily. I suppose people probably are interested in Maui also and the bigger housing movements that we're doing. But I know that, uh, you know, I was on a recent downtown Chinatown tour and they had mentioned that they got wind of a project near that area. And I think there was some concern because of the experience that the community saw back when we had the tent city uh, under Mayor Frank Fossey when they opened up a homeless shelter there because he was trying to find solutions. People may not remember the, the homeless villages up in Haleiwa and Waimanalo. I don't believe that they had the wraparound services that a lot of our shelters offer now. Yeah, yeah. The the magic to Kalhale, for one, is that you actually are creating villages. They're communities. Instead of shelters, they actually are communities. That's one thing. And then two, yes, that they have wraparound health and human services support. I just got word from HUD, Housing and Urban Development folks, that we now will be allowed to access. After all these years fighting for it, we'll be able to access Medicaid dollars to house people and in turn save on their big Medicaid spend. So, you know, I talked about housing as healthcare for years and prescribing housing, now it's gonna really be possible. So it's a different era with a population of over 500,000 people across the country that are homeless. And I do really believe that Hawaii is leading the way and can once and for all show a better model for states. So that's one of my main goals as governor, really. Yes, the Medicaid announcement, you know, is a biggie. And particularly, you know, too, with Lahaina, you know, we saw so many of those homeless people be affected by that Lahaina fire. You know, they were living in areas and families were concerned for their whereabouts. And I know there's a a lot of work ahead to get those displaced families in long-term rentals. Uh, Anything you can say on that front? Any uh, latest numbers? So we started at uh, 3,000 and 70 or so households that were in hotels, which was 8,000 people, just under 8,000 people. We're now at 4,661 people in the hotels and 1,928 uh, households. So well over a third, we're about 40% down from our peak. And I've asked our guys to really accelerate moving people into long-term housing. So the FEMA team, they have 1,415 long-term rentals now available to them. The tax break that the mayor passed in Maui is helpful and the pressure, which is necessary, about me you know, creating a moratorium on short-term rentals is very real still. If it, you know, if it doesn't need to happen, I won't do it if we have enough units. But if the number of units wane and we can't get everybody into you know, long-term housing, I will take action because otherwise we're paying for hotels. People aren't completely healthy living there. It's too difficult to live in a hotel room and not have long-term stability. So I'm going to keep that option open. I would encourage everybody out there to, to go to at least this website, helpingmaui.org backslash offer. That's helpingmaui.org backslash offer to work with our team to rent. We'll rent at a very high rate if it's a short-term rental 
but we won't we won't allow anyone to take advantage. You know, there's been some discussion about landlords kicking people out. Well, FEMA and I have made it completely clear that it's illegal to kick tenants out to participate in these programs. This is a natural disaster. People are very vulnerable. We're not going to have anybody doing that. So I uh, have my attorney general on it, and the goal is to be sensible and thoughtful for all, uh, but we have to have some property. And this is probably going to change how we view short-term rentals. You know, most of them are illegal in the state. We have 89,000 total short-term rentals in our state, but 75,000 are not sanctioned or legal. So huge percentage, over 80% are not okay. And most of those, or a majority of them, are owned by mainland guys. And so I'm going to keep pushing on that. I'm even going to be meeting with some of the advocates on the other side of the housing debate because they want me to be more mindful of that. I can tell you already, I'm very mindful. We have to change short-term rentals out and they have to be made available to local families uh, for the long haul. Well, we did talk to one family who was able to be connected uh, thanks to the uh, Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement. You know, they found a landlord who's willing, I believe, to let them stay until their house is rebuilt. So we just need more of those folks uh, to step up. Yes, we do. We need a ton of additional people. There are two pathways here. There's If people are FEMA eligible, then they're going to get FEMA housing, and that's happening as we go. And then if people are ineligible for any reason, I've got this alliance with CNHA and the Department of Human Services to put people into long-term rentals. We're going to cover the cost for a very long time, but that's in advance of building permanent housing or transitional housing, which will become a part of our portfolio. And that's key. I will say this, we have to build on Maui. We can't accept what had happened for many generations, which is we just don't build anything, that results in a tough, impossible situation. That also is one of the many reasons why it's so tight now here after the fire. So I'm going to need help from decision makers on Maui to approve certain areas to build. We'll be thoughtful. We'll keep open spaces and conservation land intact, but I need to build at Le'i And we've right now got 470 transitional homes uh, peg for that. I've authorized the money. It's about a $100 million project. And and I should tell you that Hawaii Community Foundation has been very generous and they're going to help us with the cost. So there's lots of good things happening, but we still have about 60% of the way to go to get people into long-term housing. And that's what I'm hoping will happen really aggressively day over day for the next, say, six weeks. I know people want this to go more quickly, there's just a lot of work that has to go into every placement. People have to pass their, you know, their background check. We have to have contracts in place. That's the world, I guess. That's what happens. But I'll keep making sure there's resources available so that people survive. We've been talking with Governor Josh Green about the uh, Kauhale's plan for Oahu, as well as housing for Maui families impacted by the Lahaina wildfires. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. HPR is hiring for a full-time membership manager. Are you experienced in nonprofit fundraising? A public radio superfan? This is the job opportunity for you. Join HPR's growing and passionate team. Apply by March 31st. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org slash 
jobs. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Let's get back to our interview with Governor Josh Green. The killing of a 10-year-old girl in the care of legal guardians has shocked the community. Gianna Bradley was found dead in the Waiwa home of Brandy and Thomas Bloss, who were paid nearly $2,000 a month for her care. Brandy's mother, Deborah Giron, was also arrested. Uh, she was facing murder charges and other counts related to the abuse, neglect, and starvation of the child. The case is renewing calls to find a way so our cakey don't fall through the cracks in the system. We asked the governor uh, about that in a recent task force formed to do just that. Malama Ohana is the name of the working group, and it's convened by our Office of Wellness which is in my office, in the office of the governor. And their goal is to redesign and transform how we have our child welfare system in place. So it's with families who have experienced the system. It is shepherded by our office. It's got 17 members, and some of the best people are there, like from Holly Kipa and Epic Ohana and others, Department of Human Services, KS, OHA, Julio Kalani Trust, everyone's there. The challenges are that there are people that do tragic things to others, which is incredible. It's incredible to imagine anyone would hurt a child, but they can do it. And let me be just blunt. We don't have as much staff as you would want because it's very hard to get people to work in the public sector at child welfare services. Those folks work very hard and they are understaffed. So something's got to give. And I think we have to have eyes on children with regularity no matter what. A lot of times people pull kids out of school and then teachers and and fellow students don't get to see them as often as would be safe. So that's how, you know, to put in quotes, people fall through the cracks, how that happens. I'm told that even some neighbors were aware to a degree that some of this tragedy was possible. But again, it's very difficult to get people to come forward and if they're not sure that something bad is happening, to say anything. So I just want to encourage everybody, if you see a child getting hurt or you're worried, drop us a line. You know, make sure that we are out on top of it. And the real approach is to make everyone healthier in society. That's what will happen over time. Give people better jobs and decent wages. The stresses are way less. The catastrophic failure of some families can be avoided so that people aren't in that desperate, terrible place where they hurt others. That's what we have to do. That's why I'm trying to focus on the essentials of making life livable here in Hawaii. I will never be able to solve all the problems when we're talking about really pathological behavior. Some of it is just um, horrible, what people will do. But I can minimize it, and to the extent that I can minimize it or at least tech kids and check in on them, I will press for that. We had a guest on our show earlier this week. Uh, she's giving a talk at the university Friday, uh, and she is of the mind that we don't do enough to support the families and are maybe quick to put children in foster homes in, in a foster situation. And she thought if we can support these families with housing and programs that could help them be better parents, that we might be better off. 
uh, but just another viewpoint on you know the problems that we're seeing. It's a great. She's right. It's actually the. That's kind of the point that Jamie and I have been making at home, which is putting more real support into housing, which is why most of the conversation I've had with the state has been about affordable housing and making that a better possibility for us is where you have to start. So the combo of real affordable housing to take that pressure down, good early education so that little kids get a lot of extra support when they're three, four, and five years old, a great thing. So we're emphasizing that. And then the programs too. As you know, state resources wax and wane. Sometimes we have a lot of money, sometimes we don't. And unfortunately, it's these kind of programs that are often the ones that suffer because there's just not enough money. Uh, But if we can do more for prevention and have better wages and housing that's affordable, I'm very certain that we'll see fewer of these tragedies. That's why that's got to be our focus, and I'm grateful to the people that fight for that. Well, you know, Governor, we did uh, let our listeners know that they had an opportunity to ask you questions, and we did get uh, a question from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Ellen, and the question for the governor is, when are they going to decide and commit to a reduced blood quantum for the Hawaiians for the Department of Hawaiian Homelands land distribution? Just like to get an answer Yes, we're going to do it this time and reduce it to 132nd, or no, we're not. (laughs) And what is the reason for it? Thank you. Any thoughts on that, Governor? I do. That's a question for the legislature. Uh, I am perfectly happy to uh, move that blood quantum way down and get people into the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. For my part, I have the $600 million to greatly expand the number of housing opportunities. That's what the administrators or the administrative branch has the capacity to do. I don't write the laws. And so when I was in the legislature, I was always supportive of decreasing the blood quantum to get it going. I'm even personally amenable to aggressively distributing the Department of Hawaiian Homeland lots, like pushing them out, making it happen fast. Uh, but the legislature has to make that determination on what the actual law is on blood quanta. And so they need to direct that question to the, you know, to the chair people of those key committees like Hawaiian Affairs and the Judiciary Committee. Biggest challenges right now are much broader than that. They are about housing for all and homeless services for all. That's why I focus on those more than anything else. But DHHL, Department of Hawaiian Homeland, is central to my housing plan. It's a big deal for us over on Maui. The Le'ili'i property is partially Hawaiian Homeland. We're also going to allow for more Ohana units or you know alternative dwelling small units on people's properties, especially at DHHL, so that people can bring extra family members in and friends that are Hawaiian. All of these things are really valuable, uh, but uh, that nice lady needs to accept my Apologies, that's not my call. People think because I'm a dynamic governor that I can just make these decisions. I have an equal uh, and important branch in the legislature and equal important branch in the judiciary so that you don't get a governor just making all the decisions. Yes, Uh, and you will probably need... That's my initiative, though, uh, would be to go that direction. And you probably need help from the uh, congressional delegation as well, too, if there are any changes to that program. 
it's pretty big. That's a pretty big deal, yes. right? But it makes sense. And um, even take my family, for example. Uh, my wife was under 50%, so she didn't uh, qualify. Uh, Jamie, you know, is an attorney. She was raised in Kaneohe. She is Hawaiian, but she's not a full 50% Hawaiian. And so my children are then half of that, right? So it, it's really important that we recognize what it means to be Hawaiian in our culture and that we honor uh, the use of those lands, of which there are hundreds of thousands of acres and, you know, tens of thousands of people. That people should not be dying on that wait list. Yes. Well, Governor, thank you. We really appreciate you carving time for us today. You bet. Thanks for having me. All right. Aloha. Aloha. Uh, that was Governor Josh Green talking with us about the need for housing for Native Hawaiians and the efforts underway to review our child welfare system to avoid harm to our keiki in the foster care system in light of the recent indictments over the death of 10-year-old Gianna Bradley and the neglect and abuse of other children at the hands of those who are being paid by taxpayers to take care of them. thick blanket of dirty air is hanging over Accra in Ghana. The dry and dusty conditions are forcing people to stay inside and making many sick if they have to go out. Their faces all dry, their lips are breaking. They're always complaining of headache. Why Accra has the dubious honor of being the most polluted city on earth. That's next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from the Chamber of Sustainable Commerce, supporting businesses that are dedicated to the triple bottom line of people, planet, and prosperity, launching its directory of member businesses. Learn more at chamberofsustainablecommerce.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. As we come off Valentine's Day, we'd like to note that February 14th was also a special day for us on The Conversation. It was our anniversary, number 13. After so many backyard quizzes over the past decade, this led us to ask about the significance of 13 in numerology, the study of numbers, and their influence in life. In the West, this double digit has a bad connotation, as in the Friday the 13th being a very unlucky day, urban legend. But as it happens, some cultures uh, call 13 the angel number because it symbolizes leading with love and compassion. Some believe that this number can bring about change, which leads to having an optimistic outlook on life and enabling people to remain positive 
in the face of negativity. Anniversaries are often occasions for special gifts. For instance, silver is the traditional gift for a 25th anniversary, and gold is customary for a 50th. For today's Backyard Quiz, what is the traditional gift given on the 13th anniversary? Call 808-941-3689 or toll-free 888-77-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NareedHawaii.com. Are you interested in working for one of Hawaii's most dynamic media organizations? HPR is looking to hire a full-time board operator with experience in digital media production and broadcasting. If you're a quick study, possess strong time management skills, have a dynamic on-air presence, and if you enjoy new and interesting workplace challenges, HPR wants to hear from you. Visit hawaiipublicradio.org jobs to learn more. Water rights have long been a flashpoint on Maui, and going forward, it's not expected to get less contentious. HBR reporter Kuve Hirishi joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, <laughs> Catherine. Yes. Yeah, you've got <coughs> some, uh, you're tracking bills at the legislature that have to do with the State Water Commission. Yes, and, and you know, one of the many lingering issues from the West Maui wildfires is, the, is that power struggle, continued power struggle for the rights to water. This bill, Senate Bill 3327, aims to strengthen the state water code and protect the Water Commission from outside influence, and it's uh, making its way through the legislature. Uh, it proposes to remove the State Commission on Water Resource Management from out and under the Board of Land and Natural Resources and make it its own entity. Uh, the administratively autonomous body would still focus its sights on managing water as a public trust resource, but it would not be led by BLNR chair, a political appointee. It would have its own executive director. Um, but it would still uh, remain attached to DLNR administratively. So think of the Mauna Kea Stewardship and Oversight Authority, uh, some autonomy, but still uh, for administrative purposes attached to DLNR. So the bill received overwhelming support, more than 200 pages of testimony. Several dozen Maui residents you know, flew in to Honolulu to testify, something we've been seeing over the last six months uh, since the fire, that higher level of engagement and advocacy around water issues. Earth Justice Attorney Elena Bryant, who has worked with this community and many others in policing the Water Commission and making sure they uphold the state water code, says this measure aims to address what happened in West Maui after the fires. You know, the Lahaina wildfires really put a spotlight on how politics have invaded water policy in Hawaii. And the Kalel debacle and the aftermath of the wildfires, with the governor pulling all the strings in response to well-connected corporate interests, is an excellent example of that. You know, with one letter from the likes of West Maui land, decades of commission work and community efforts to protect the region's water resources were rolled back. And a valuable and effective public servant, literally the commission's appointed administrative leader, 
was unilaterally removed from his commission post and reassigned by the chair of the commission without any commission input, without any transparency or explanation. And so what this bill really aims to do is insulate the Water Commission from political interference. So it isn't beholden to the political gamesmanship of an administration. So some of the sort of lingering issues coming out of uh, that fire was the suspension of the state water code, sort of rolling back some of the protections uh, for the region's water resources. And of course, this is normally done by governments in a time of emergency. It's it's not, you know, it's it's common. But there was some concern following that with the uh, reassignment of Water Deputy Khalil Manuel, who Bryant uh, Uh, explained earlier in her uh, bite there, but this restructuring of the Water Commission aims to insulate the oversight body from outside influence. The measure was introduced by Hawaii Island Senator Lorraine Inouye, and it would also uh, make a number of changes uh, to really strengthen the water code, and one of those is to increase the penalty for state water code violations. So currently, fines are capped at 5,000 per violation, which hasn't been enough to deter private purveyors from taking more water than they're allowed. And this has been a major problem in places like West Maui, where 75% of the water is handled by those private purveyors. Uh, This has been an issue the legislature has been trying to address since the state water code was established in 1987. A bill introduced last year by Oahu Senator Carl Rhodes attempting to set a maximum of maximum fine of $60,000 a day for violations uh, stalled in conference committee. And so this bill is kind of taking uh, that conversation, bringing it back to the table. And for displaced Lahaina residents uh, like Kanoi Lani Stewart, this is a much needed fix. Stewart says to this day when private water purveyors take more water than they're allowed, the current fine limits aren't enough of a deterrent. If this measure passes, violators will actually be punished, she says. They'll have to pay for what they've done. Uh, The proposed improvements to the state water code are not new. Um, Some of most of what's in this bill uh, was taken from a list of recommendations, a 200 page report issued in the early 90s by a special commission tasked with reviewing the effectiveness of the state water code sort of five years into it being out there. Uh, Here's Brian to explain. A lot of the bill seeks to implement recommendations of a review commission report that was issued in 1994. A review commission was established to perform a comprehensive review of the state water code five years after its enactment, and a seven-member commission held multiple public informational meetings, public hearings throughout the state, and 30 years ago, it issued a 200-plus page report with recommendations for improving the water code. So fast forward 30 years, For people working on water issues for generations, it's heartening to see that finally there's a potential for these review commission recommendations to come to fruition. It's amazing. Thirty, I I hadn't been um, privy to this to this report until this bill mentioned it. It it was interesting to read. Um, We do have it a link of it there on our uh, website. But yeah, these these recommendations have been sort of sitting around for decades trying to uh, make its way into legislation. So SB 3327 was actually approved unanimously by two committees in the Senate, Committees on Water and Land and Public Safety. 
and the measures now awaiting a hearing by our m- the money committee, Ways and Means, and the judiciary. And any sense as to what the appetite is in the House on this issue? No, there is a ho- there was no House a companion bill. There was a bill similar to this one introduced by some members in the House, uh, but uh, we haven't seen a hearing on the that bill, particular bill, just yet. There are some other bills circulating, one to um, make fire suppression or fire safety a beneficial use, so a protected use in, under the state water code. It was introduced uh, by uh, Senator Ichiyama, but did not um, I believe it was deferred by the initial committee's hearing on it, so not a lot of traction there. But the legislators are very aware of some of the issues coming out of West Maui when it comes to water management and sort of just seeking a better way to go about it and prevent things like that. Well, so I know the advocates are saying, well, these are the pros. It'll be a stronger, um, you know, commission and code uh but what are the cons? Critics, I mean, what, yeah. Yeah, what, what, what do they think? So I think the biggest, you know, DLNR came in um, supporting most of what's in the bill with some concerns uh, shared by the state attorney general's office over independent counsel. So the idea of having their own lawyer, this commission, should they be detached from BLNR, having independent counsel, some of what the Department of Hawaiian Homelands is seeking, and I think kind of a similar outfit to what the PUC handles. Um, but that was... A, big pushback from uh, State Attorney General's office and also DLNR on that point. They want everybody kind of in the same boat right. when you're making those um, arguments. And yeah. so we'll see what happens with that component of the bill, if that is something that might push it back from getting the approval it needs. Yeah, I mean, I know there's been lots of talk about the fines, you know, and I'm not sure if the commission was supposed to to uh, come up with some rules to set the fines because you've had other people taking more water than they should have. I think we saw the Navy do that with the Red Hill. Right. Uh, I think there have been other other issues, maybe other agencies. I'm not positive, but possibly Board of Water Supply. So how do you apply, you know, the fines um, across the board? Uh, So, yeah, interesting issues. sure to get more interesting as the session goes. It does. This is a big change and could be a game changer for the Water Commission, but we'll see where everybody else lands on this. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kuvehi. We have been talking to HBR's Kuvehi Hiraishi about the continuing water struggle over water rights on Maui and across the state. Read more of her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. you support HPR, you support community reporting about community issues. It's been more than eight years since a group of families from Ha'ena, Kauai, established the Ha'ena community-based subsistence fishing area. The community creates rules regulating catch limits, size limits, species limits, and more. With your support, HPR brings you voices from our island communities. It's a tool that makes sure that we can keep on practicing and fishing the way we did and not excluding folks but saying like hey if you like come fish in this area this is how we fish this is how we take this is how much we take it's got to be community driven 
Gotta be from the people of the place. They know their place better than anybody. Support local reporting on HPR. Donate at hawaiipublicradio.org. And now it's time for the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. We are another year older and another year wiser. Maybe. (laughs) This week marks the 13th anniversary of the conversation. If you've tuned in for the past decade, you know that we've been here daily talking with guests about a variety of topics that touch us throughout the state. We've talked to a variety of folks across all spectrums of society, politicians, foreign dignitaries, film and television stars, sports legends, musical icons, NPR celebrities, and local everyday people making Hawaii a better place. As you can imagine, over a decade of different topics has led to a fat Rolodex of contacts. uh, contacts. For us, 13 is a beautiful number without any unlucky connotations and a great reason to celebrate. Earlier in the show, we asked you what gift is traditionally given on a 13th anniversary, and the answer to today's Backyard Quiz is lace because the interweaving threads symbolize the intricacies of life. And our winner today, Susie from Puna. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have one to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Remember when we used to say there's an app for that? Well, today it's probably safe to say there's a podcast about that. The popularity of podcasts among a wide range of people, including young people, is one of the reasons NPR launched its Student Podcast Challenge five years ago. The window for this year's challenge opened this month, so the conversation's Russell Subiono talked to two of the people behind the contest, NPR journalists Steve Drummond and Janet Ujong Lee. Why was it important to create the challenge and keep it around for the last six years? Oh, that's a great question. And it's um, it's been so much fun to uh, see this thing grow and develop over the years. We started off, we, we are the education team at NPR. And so we kind of wanted to put our money where our, where our mouth is a little bit in designing something that would, you know, get podcasting into the classrooms. Um, and we've heard over the years from many, many teachers saying this really got them fired up and jazzed and enthused about their uh, about taking a normal sort of term paper project instead, putting their students in front of microphones and letting them uh, letting them explore a new medium. But for us, the the most striking thing is the variety and enthusiasm of stories that we've heard from young people around the country. We've now had more than 50,000 people, uh, students participate in the program, and we've heard all kinds of stories. You you can only imagine the, the imagination that young people bring to us and the wonderful stories they tell. Janet, what are your thoughts from your perspective? Yeah, I feel similarly. I think it's a mix of one. It's really informative for us also to have a better understanding of what young people are thinking about. A big part of that is a lot of the themes of what these students talk about change every year depending on what's happening in their lives so early on. When we first started in 2018, lots on like social media and technology's impact on young people to now people talking about climate change and how it's impacting education. So I think even as journalists, it's really informative. And also, yeah, as Steve mentioned, a really great opportunity to connect with teachers and also help the next generation of 
audio journalists. And you both have touched on the fact that it's been incorporated into classrooms and, and teachers and students get really fired up about it. How do you think students benefit from being able to work on a project like this as opposed to, you know, kind of the traditional uh, read from a book, write a report, take a test? Sure. It's kind of a tentative uh, some of the policies that we cover in education right now, trying to engage students in more group work and project-based learning in which they have to work together. They learn how to solve problems together. So at a minimum, it does that. But also what we're seeing, and, and teachers are telling us, it's making their students better writers, you know, sort of breaking out of the kind of formal academic style of writing and learning how to write in their own voices. And we're seeing them really gain a deeper understanding of storytelling and how um, how a story comes together. And finally, what I'd say is you um, and I know both know that so many people have a, a genuine fear of public speaking, of speaking into a microphone. And we're seeing kids in fifth, sixth, seventh grade really uh, bringing the enthusiasm and energy to, to this, that they're really, it's something that whether they become journalists or not isn't really the point. It's just the fact that they're they're learning a new skill and they're gaining confidence in the process. Yeah, reiterating a lot of what Steve said. And I think one example I can give is last year's contest, we had a finalist entry from the Highlands Intermediate School in Pearl City um, that focused on the Hawaii Innocence Project, right? Um, And I think it's a great example of it gets students out of the classrooms to go talk to real people, um, to get audio and really in a way like learn more about whatever topic they're delving into, in which this case, a local story and yeah, it's really cool to have these two middle schoolers um, find something that they want to learn more about and kind of going out of their way to learn about this, like beyond the books or beyond a quick Internet search. And I think it's a really engaging um, way of teaching in any classroom, regardless of topic. We've gotten entries from history classrooms, um, math teachers, um, something like English or like languages. Um, but yeah, so it's also applicable to a range of classrooms and many different teachers have incorporated in different ways, which has been really cool to follow. Those two students from Highlands Intermediate School, Emma Forges and Brenna Colmenares, I had the opportunity to interview them last year about being named one of the finalists for last year's challenge. Their podcast spotlighted the Hawaii Innocence Project and former inmate Ian Schweitzer who was freed a year ago after nearly 25 years in prison. What do you recall, or do you recall, what it was about their submission that made it stand out? Yeah, I also just took another listen so I can speak more about this. (laughs) Um, I think, as I spoke about a little bit earlier, it's a really great example of students kind of doing their own investigative reporting on a local story It has many elements we're looking for. One, it's a great story. Two, really nice structure of the way they introduce different um, voices in their stories. Not to mention that they have different voices. Um, We also just get a lot of entries that are one student talking in the mic. So that's great that they went ahead and interviewed a lot of real people. And three, like really smart uses of sound. And you can really tell that they put a lot of care into writing something out and putting all the different sounds together in the editing process. So yeah, I think it's a really good example of all of those elements that we're looking for, a good story, structure, and really just like nice reporting. And a bonus is that they found 
a local story that really matters to a lot of them that a lot of us didn't know about. It's always a really good feeling to listen to something and be like, oh, I didn't really know about this on our end. So that was really cool. Steve, did any of the other submissions from last year, can you give maybe another example of one that really stood out? Yeah, I found very inspiring our last year, our high school winner from last year was a student from uh, Jackson, Mississippi, who told us she had never heard a podcast before. And and uh, it was a class assignment. And what she chose to take on was a, an issue that was troubling not only her school, but her community, which was the problem with the water quality in Jackson, Mississippi. The water was undrinkable. And this student set out to ask why and to be a little angry about it. And her podcast was really inspiring. And for us to see somebody who had taken up a brand new medium and succeeded so well that our judges unanimously voted it the winner. That was that was quite inspiring. And it's just an example of the sort of voices and stories from all over the country that we get every year on this. It's really been uh, a, a lot of fun. And it's really fun to bring those stories to our NPR audience. And for those considering maybe entering the podcast challenge this year, what would you say to them to encourage them to participate? Yeah, like the student Steve just talked about, a lot of our winners, finalists, honorable mentions, many of them are first-time podcasters or folks who are really trying it for the first time for a class, um, haven't really listened to many of them. So I would more than anything say, if you are making something, whether it's an assignment or just for fun with friends, if you have something... I would turn it in because you really never know. And we also have no idea what your experiences are. We are just purely listening, um, going in cold. So yeah, please give it a shot. We would love to listen to whatever you send us. Are there any tips or tricks that you can give them to maybe help them make their podcast stand out? We have a lot of materials on our website that we've set out there. I'll tell you one uh, funny example is many of the students they will uh, try to record their their podcast maybe in their classroom, which is a lot of noise and ambient sounds. And as you know, Russell, that d- doesn't work too well. We asked NPR correspondent Don Gagne to do us a favor, and he showed us how when he's traveling all over the country, he's recording from a hotel room. He uses the pillows. He makes a little pillow fort in his hotel bedroom, and, and that's how he makes his uh, recording sound better. So we made a little video of this. We put it up on the web, and we're trying to encourage students. One of the cool things about podcasts is it doesn't take a fancy studio or a lot of expensive equipment you can do it in your basement or you can do it in a in a closet and uh, Janet maybe you can tell them where they can go to find all that information yeah so everything Steve just mentioned lives on our web in one place at NPR sound advice so I would just look that up and there's the video Steve mentioned and every other resource that you're looking for um, that should be able to help out any students regardless of what equipment or experience you have Steve, Janet, thank you so much for your time today. We're going to get this out and and keep our fingers crossed that a lot of Hawaii students uh, will submit for the challenge. But thanks again for your time. Really had a good time talking to you guys. Oh, it was our pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. I can't wait to listen to the chat you mentioned us about with the high schoolers last year. That's awesome. That was NPR journalist Steve Drummond and Janet Ujong Lee talking to HPR's Russell Subiano about the 2024 NPR Student Podcasting Challenge. The two Hawaii students who were named finalists in this year's challenge, 
Emma Forges and Brenna Colmenares are currently 8th graders at Highlands Middle School in Pearl City. Their podcast spotlighted the Hawaii Innocence Project, which freed Ian Schweitzer. He was serving nearly 25 years in prison for the murder of Dana Ireland. Here's a clip from that podcast. So he went in when he was in his mid-20s. He spent all of his 30s in prison. He spent all of his 40s in prison. He's 51 years old now. He doesn't know how to use an iPhone because an iPhone wasn't invented when he went to prison, right? He doesn't know how to use the internet, right? Um, and so how does he start over again? In the U.S., 2 to 10% of people who are currently in prison don't deserve to be there. Well, the Hawaii Innocence Project secures the rights for people who are wrongly incarcerated. Co-director Kenneth Lawson has more to say about this. Uh, my name is Kenneth Lawson. I'm the co-director of the Hawaiian Innocence Project. Well, we represent people who were wrongfully convicted in prison, but they're actually innocent uh, of the crime for which they're doing time for. And so we use DNA evidence and other evidence to try to gain their freedom. We have a, a, a worldwide network where we represent people who are in prison for crimes they just didn't commit. Sometimes our system gets it wrong, right? So we live in a system to where everybody believes that, that our jury system, and it is, it's, it's probably one of the best in, in the world, but it still makes mistakes. And so DNA has shown us since 1993. When I talk about DNA, DNA is where uh, we can prove in a rape or a murder, like in our, our case with Ian Schweitzer that just happened. He spent 25 years in prison, almost 25 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Well, was we freed him because of the DNA. And so since 1993, since the Innocence Projects have started throughout the United States, uh, over 300 people that have been locked up have been freed through DNA testing. We believe, we believe in a non-biased, non-racially sexist biased uh, system um, where Innocent people should not be in prison for crimes they didn't commit. So the value is just caring for one another, is it not? Like caring enough to go visit people that have been forgotten about, who've been claiming for years that they're innocent. The value in what we do is helping reunite families that have been torn apart by a mistake. And that was part of a podcast by two Oahu middle school students who were named finalists in NPR Student Podcast Challenge last year. This year's challenge opened this month. Uh, that contest is open to students across the country in grades 4 through 12. The deadline to submit is May 3rd, 2024. We'll have a link on the conversation page of our website after the show. Well, that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we have a Hanaho show for you, highlighting Paniolo history. Got a cowboy or cowgirl story to share? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217, or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Look for the conversation on Spotify, Apple, or on our website, or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.